أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله تبارك وتعالى وسلم على سيدنا محمد سيدنا وسندنا وحبيبنا وشفيعنا ومولانا صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وأصحابه وأزواجه وذرياته وأهل بيته ومن تبعهم بإحسان إلى يوم الدين وبعد وعنها يعني عن عائشة رضي الله تعالى عنها أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال ما من يوم أكثر من أن يعتق الله فيه عبدا من النار من يوم عرفتها رواه مسلم سيدة عائشة رضي الله تعالى عنها نيرت the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم said that there's no day in which Allah تعالى will manumit more uh, slaves from the uh, hellfire than the day of Arafah it's a hadith of Muslim and so we were talking about before the the discussion about the virtue of the fadl of fasting uh, Ashura versus uh, the day of Arafah and that there are some athar that seem to indicate that the fast of Ashura is more virtuous the fact that it used to be Hajj and that the Messenger of Allah commanded people to fast it and uh, that there are also athar that seem to indicate the virtue of Fasting the day of Arafah is greater. And so this is, amongst other things, a proof of the latter, which is the, the position of tahqiq. And Allah Ta'ala uh, knows best that there's no day in which Allah Ta'ala will decree the freeing of more slaves from the hellfire than uh, on the day of Arafah. And this also is the narrated in the fadail, the virtue of, virtues of hajj. It says... Uh, uh, متعلق بأكثر هذا صدر حديث آخر وإنه ليدنو ثم يباها الملائكة فيقول ما أراد هؤلاء that uh, it's mentioned in some narrations uh, that are that some narrations with similar wordings they have they have the extra words that uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, comes close to Arafah and uh, um, or comes down near to it and he then boasts to his angels about his pride uh, at what's happening in that place and then he asks what do they what do these people want um, the idea being that he's asking what do they want in order to give it and of course, the standard disclaimer is that the, the, the dunu here doesn't indicate spatial closeness, but uh, it's it's talking about something else that should be understood by a person who has common sense, and then a person who wants to, uh, you know, uh, somehow uh, play 3D coordinates game, uh, uh, then they will take from it whatever they're going to take based on their own. Uh, presuppositions but this is something important to note that these issues about describing Allah Ta'ala in corpore corporeal terms or in spatial terms nobody even used to ask about them until after the first three generations that Malik Rahimullah Ta'ala then had to start telling people that to ask about those questions is bid'ah otherwise the Arabs both the Arabs of Jahiliyyah and the, the Aslaf in Islam, they never used to ask because it was clear to them that Allah Ta'ala doesn't have a body and isn't in space, that this isn't talking about moving around from here and there. Wallahu alam. Wa an Ibn Abbas radiallahu ta'ala anhu, wa anhuma, anna nabiya sallallahu alayhi wa sallam aqala umratun fi ramadana ta'dilu hajjatan ma'i muttafaqun alayhi. This is that it's narrated by both Bukhari and Muslim on the authority of Sayyidina Abdullah bin Abbas. May Allah Ta'ala be pleased with both of them. That the Prophet said that making Umrah in Ramadan uh, is equal to making Hajj with me, making one Hajj with me. And so, uh, again, the understanding of this hadith by nobody was that making Umrah in Ramadan somehow obviates the, the necessity to go to Hajj. And like we mentioned from before, it's an usuli issue that every deed has a number of different angles. One is the responsibility to perform it. One is the validity of its performance. One is the sin of its omission. And one is the uh, acceptance and reward. Uh, 
Those are all separate issues. They're unconnected with one another. And so the responsibility to perform it is still there for the, the farth hajj of a person in their life. Even if the reward is equal to the reward of performing hajj. Um, and even if the reward is equal, uh, but still, you know, one might say, well, I missed the same reward from hajj, but I made it up from, from Umrah. But yes, but you didn't suffice yourself from uh, uh, the responsibility of and the sin of omitting the hajj. And you also, you know, don't know which one is going to be accepted. This is one matter, one issue. The other issue is that whenever we talk about a deed, uh, the thawab, the reward of a deed, every reward has kind of like a base pay and a bonus. This is what's me meant by uh, a person, you know, like for example, when they read in the book of Allah Ta'ala that every good deed is rewarded 10 times its worth, all the way up until, or like, you know, up until 700 times its worth, or the hadith of the Prophet which indicates the same. And the Mufassirin, they say that 700 here doesn't mean it's a limit. Rather, it's an expression that it can go much further than that. There are also, in the Qur'an, there, there is a promise of reward even more than 700. Uh, and in the hadith of the Prophet wasallam, likewise. Uh, uh, likewise. And so, we see that uh, that that multiplication is based on some sort of like base pay type of number and so what is being indicated here is that the after all the multiplication comes out from this umrah and ramadan it will be equal equal to what the base reward of performing hajj is and allah ta'ala knows best mm -hmm. hajj with the prophet and allah ta'ala knows best and there's a couple of there's a couple of things uh, in this hadith also that should be remembered. The person, obviously, it's always barakah to quote a hadith, but it shouldn't be, you know, without some sort of context. And that is that the context of this hadith is that the Rasul sallallahu alaihi wasallam, he made Hajj only once. And so a woman, she came to the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. تخلفت عن الحج معه صلى الله عليه وسلم فقال لها التمري إن عمرة في إن عمرة في رمضان تعدل حجة معي أو كما قال عليه الصلاة والسلام. So she wanted to go really bad, but she wasn't able to go because whatever, either responsibilities or didn't have the money or was sick or whatever, right? So he, what did he tell her? He told her he told her make Umrah in Ramadan, and it will be like an Umrah that. Or like a hajj, like making hajj with me. And Allah knows why he said he said that. It's true, obviously, but he could have said a number of other things. Like he could have said, like, go on hajj, and it's like, you know, it'll be like going on hajj with me. He could have said that as well. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, but why he said make, make umrah, perhaps she wasn't able to uh, handle making the hajj. Perhaps she, you know, nowadays it's an issue of, I, I'm saying that, you know, because these considerations, we should think about them as well. Nowadays, because Allah knows best what happened back then, we can speculate. The point of speculating is not in order to just like shoot the breeze, but to see what benefit we can get from it. So, Hajj is like very difficult to go on now. Umrah is much easier, even though it's not all that easy, but it's much easier than going on Hajj. So perhaps that's why he he told her to make it Umrah or whatever. Allah knows best. But the point is, there's a context to it. Now, Ibn Allan, he you know from their Shafi'i perspective, he says. That, that, that the way that they, you know, the, the methodology they use to interpret the hadith is what? Is not to, uh, in general, not to sp specify when the Rasulullah says something, not to pigeonhole it to a specific situation until or unless there are certain compelling reasons to do so. Even, even that, there's a methodology for determining those things, which is also the methodology of, you know, the Mufassirin for interpreting the Quran. That an ayah of the Qur'an might have been revealed in a particular context, but it's universally applicable until or unless um, there is something indicating that, no, it's only for that one time and place. And there's a whole methodology for determining what that is as well. And so this is a second, this is a second thing that uh, people should uh, keep in mind. Uh, a third thing that people should keep in mind is that the Rasul 
he uh, um, he didn't make Umrah in the year of the Fatih. Right, because the two great things happened, two great uh, victories happened in Ramadan. One was Badr, and the other was with the, was the Fatih of Mecca, Mukarramah. And he didn't make Umrah in, 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 in Ramadan. And so Ibn Allah speculates about why that is. What he, you know, what he mentions is, he says, because he was busy with what? With dealing with the conquest uh, of Mecca, and he said, and he didn't say that. Actually, the words are, "I said conquest." He says, That obviously the reason he's concerned is because he conquered it. But the way Ibn Allah mentions it is because he was concerned and he was he was tied up with uh, looking after uh, looking after the welfare of the people of Mecca. That how are we now? Like the entire system of Jahiliyyah has broke, been broken. Like how are we going to put the pieces together in a way that doesn't harm the harm the locals, that doesn't harm the people of Makkah Mukarramah? Thumma bitajhizi tilka al-juyushi hunain wa ta'if, and then also uh, because the the tribes in the area they went awal then after that, and started making designs to try to destroy Quraysh and try to take Makkah Mukarramah away, um, and so he had to prepare the armies that were going to go out and fight against uh, uh, the Bedou and Hunain. That was mentioned in the Quran by name, and uh, uh, then afterward, Taif, which was the main driver of uh, these this military uh, plot to overthrow uh, Quraysh from Makkah, Makkah Mukarramah, and so this is another this is another uh, I guess lesson is what is Hajj is important, Umrah is important, and there's great benefit in it, but it's not a reason not to do what you have to do in your own life. And for the Ummah of the Prophet It's not that, you know, you, you said like, you know, your masjid is on fire and they're like, well, you know, I got to leave for Hajj. So your house is on fire, I got to leave for Umrah. That you should take care of those things. Those things are also faraid and there's also reward in them. And the Rasul ordered those things so that people can then afterward make Hajj and Umrah until the Day of Judgment. Another thing he does mention as well is that it's probable that this hadith was said after, uh, after, uh, uh, after the fath happened. Because the fath happened in the seventh year of the Prophet ﷺ's Mubarak Hijrah. And the uh, Hajjat al-Wada' when he went وسلم, on Hajj was in his last year. But uh, that may be neither here nor there because this may not be a thing that just became a thing at that one moment. It may have been true from before as well, but that's also a possibility because that's the way the, the times and dates uh, are laid out. So, you know, there are people, uh, they, they, they say things, oh, Alhamdulillah, I made Hajj, you know, this many times, that many times. Uh, I made Umrah this many times and that many times. And if it's, you know, if you're saying it, that you're speaking to remind yourself how much Allah has blessed you. There's nothing wrong with that. If you're saying it to show off, obviously that's haram. And that invalidates the reward of your, uh, of your deeds. But don't just do these things in order to like rack up points. Like I did it this many times, or I'm going to Umrah, or I'm this, I'm that. Sometimes there are other things you need to get done. The fact that they abstract you from going to Umrah, uh, or to go to a Nafil Hajj. Or even for the Fard Hajj for that matter, because the Fard Hajj is far. There's very few things that are more important than it. Very few. But there are some things. If you're going to leave behind your aged parents and they're going to die or whatever, right? It's, it's a problem. You know, if you, it's, a, it's a problem. It's an issue. And so uh, the point is, is that don't just let that, you know, putting a notch, notch in your belt uh, um, be something that obstructs you from doing what you need to do because there's oftentimes uh, reward, uh, more reward in that as well. Uh, if it's something that the Sharia gives priority over Hajj and Umrah, then do it and expect the reward of all of the things that you, that you would have gotten from doing Hajj or Umrah and, and, and expect it to be included into your, into your account as well. This is one of my favorite stories that is in the uh, uh, Fazal Hajj Sheikh al-Hadith, he includes a story about 
about the Sayyidina Abdullah bin Mubarak Rahimahullah Ta'ala He was one of the great mashayikh of the Taba Tabi'een His hadith are narrated in the entire uh, Al-Suhasitta and he was a companion of Imam Abu Hanifa amongst others and he uh, just was a very celebrated and like beloved figure in the Ummah and he it's famous about him that he would uh, split the year into four month, three four month parts. That for four months he would uh, seek seek knowledge and teach, and for four months he would go out in jihad in the path of Allah Taala, and for four months he uh, uh, he would um, earn his livelihood trade through trade, and then he would uh, uh, start the entire cycle again every year at Hajj. And uh, he was so renowned and so loved, beloved. He actually, his ribat was in Maru, which is uh, an abandoned city in Turkestan, Turkmenistan, both Turk, Turkis, Turkmenistan, which is part of Turkestan, Central Asia. And Maru was never rebuilt after the Mongols sacked it. Inshallah, we're leaving for Sicily tomorrow. We also went to Uzbekistan. People should go. If you don't want to go with me, go with somebody else. You go see these places, inshallah. Turkmenistan is hard to get into nowadays, but you know, you can go all the way up until the border, up until the border uh, with it. Inshallah, it opens up as well soon. Allah give help to the, our brothers and sisters in Turkestan and all over the world. Uh, and so, uh, Maru, he had, he, his ribat was at Maru, he actually had to build two of them. Because there were so many, so many of his followers. Um, that they started to beef with one another, the Ahlul Rai and Ahlul Hadith. The Amin out loud and roughly a day multiple times crowd versus the Amin quietly and only once crowd. You know, they started butting heads. So he actually had two khanqas and <laughs> two ribats in, in Maru. Uh, uh, one for the Ahlul Athar and one for the uh, Ahlul Nadar. And he was the Radil Fariqin. He was the, like one of the few people that both both parties said, this is our guy. And they were happy with him. So it said that one of his years when he was on his way to uh, on his way to Hajj, he passed by. He saw something suspect, something sketchy. What our friends from England would say, it's dodgy. So he saw what he saw a, a, a dead duck uh, in a pile somewhere in a heap, and so he saw a, a, a small child pick up the duck and kind of shake it to dust it off and then take it home. And so he's like, what is, are they going to eat this? Like, you know, what is this? So halal, right? Concerned about halal. See that? Hafsa for life. And so uh, what happens is that, uh, halal advocates, yeah, man. So what happens, he, we have a, a, a high nisbah, mashallah. So he, he followed the, he followed his child home and he found that the mother then took it and butchered it and emptied the, you know, the guts out and skinned it, feathered it, etc. And was going to cook it, and then he couldn't take it anymore. He says, he says, oh dear sister, don't you know in the Sharia of Islam this is haram? And so he he she she responds to him, says, oh brother, so I know better than you that it's haram. I'm uh, from the family of the Prophet If we weren't so poor, if we weren't so broke, that this is the only thing I can eat and give to my kids to eat, I would have never eaten this. And so uh, he. I'm sure you heard this story before. Maybe you heard it from me, but I love it. I, t I love to hear it again and again, so I'll say it again. And so uh, he was so moved by that, that the money he had for the trip, because, you know, you have to carry your provisions with you. Nowadays, people blow like 12 grand on Hajj or whatever, right? It's because you paid the services up front. Whereas with, with him, he had, you know, you have to have the money to like, whatever, uh, you know, the expenditures you have there on back, you have to keep all of it with you. So he just took whatever money he had for that Hajj trip. He said, here, just take it. You know, eat, don't eat anything haram. Don't feed your kids haram. Just like, take it. And he just turned around to go back, back to Maru. And so he saw in a dream, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, that, uh, you know, that Allah Ta'ala, uh, that an angel came to him and said that Allah Ta'ala was so pleased with, with what you did, that I've appointed an angel to take your form every year until every year and make Hajj on your behalf until the Yawm Al-Qiyamah and that it will make Hajj on your behalf as if it's you and you'll receive the reward for it. 
right? Don't, don't, Islam is not for people who are like, like, like lemmings, mechanized androids, I'm going to do this and I don't care, it comes hell or high water, you know, like someone says, you know, someone says that, uh, you know, don't go into the masjid, you know, like you'll die. You know, so there's a hostage situation, they'll shoot you, they'll kill you. Say, no, I'm going to go in and I'm going to be the shaykh. Inshallah, the person who is there are people like that in the ummah. You know, and some of them, their piety is so much, maybe they'll come out alive, who knows. And uh, some of them, they'll get shot and they'll become shuhada. Not because they did what they were supposed to do, but because Allah Ta'ala loves the one who loves him, even if the person's an idiot. And who am I to say he's an idiot, Allah Ta'ala loves him, maybe I shouldn't say that. The point is, that's not the high road. The, 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 the road of Nubuah is what? The road of Nubuah is to like, do the math, make a plan, make the best decisions you can, and then your tawakkul in Allah is that, inshallah, that will turn out for the best. Because oftentimes that doesn't even turn out for the best. Oftentimes that even ends in what we think of as failure. Uh, and that's what tawakkul means, is to, to try your best and then trust in Allah Ta'ala that that will turn out for the best. Uh, it doesn't mean to just like close your eyes and like just do, you know, roll the dice and say, hey, you know, what the heck? Like that's not how, that, that's not how this is supposed to work. So the person who has the ilm and the person who Allah gives the understanding to, let them practice that. The person who doesn't have that ilm or doesn't have that understanding or whatever, or maybe they understand something different, uh, then let them do what they think is best. Their mu'amala is with Allah, Allah Karim. Allah Ta'ala is generous and He accepts from people even though sometimes we don't do what we're supposed to or we could have done something better, right? That's His karam, is akram al-akramin. That's not you know, anything else. But the point is, is that if you have something more important to do, and how do you know what's more important? I have a feeling in my heart. No, how you know what's more important is that there's a whole sharia, there's a whole usul, there's a, that the people of istimbat that are mentioned in the Quran, the people who understand the usul, the principles that these things are based on inside out, you know, if you're one of them, then you understand. If you're not one of them, go and ask them. If you're one of them, go ask the other ones and like make mushroom, make your, you know, your, your decision. Don't just let this be like a blind objective that you just go and do for no reason. Inshallah, there's still some khair in it. You know, I'm not saying that it's horrible, you're going to go to hell, you know, or whatever. But there is something better to do that's closer to the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. You'll receive the reward of the hajj or the umrah, or whatever it is that you wanted to do. Once Allah showed you something better, and you'll see, receive the reward of the lesser thing and the reward of the greater thing. And so that's another lesson to be learned from this. وَعَنْهُ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ تَعَالَ عَنْهُمَا Also narrated from Sayyidina Abdullah bin Abbas رضي الله عنهما. so there are two hadiths there are two different there are two different incidents but they the subject matter of them is the same which is that a woman once came to the prophet sallallahu and uh, uh, she said that she said oh messenger of allah the obligation uh, uh, that allah has that allah is owed upon his uh, slaves of making hajj this obligation reached my father when he was already a really old man. It reached my father when he's already a really old man. He said that it, it reached it reached my father while he's when he when he's in his old age. He's not able to sit comfortably on a uh, on a rahila on a on a riding animal on a camel. Should I make Hajj on his behalf? And he says, Rasulullah sallallahu said yes. And it's a hadith of both Bukhari and Muslim. And the second hadith is the same, the same topic. Uh, Laqit bin Amir, who is uh, Laqit bin Amir bin Sabra. And so there's a discussion amongst the muhaddithun as to whether these two people are the same people or they're different. So uh, Ibn Abdul Bar uh, and Bukhari and a number of muhaddithun, they consider that this is the same person. His kunya is Abu Razin and with some he was famous by the name of his grandfather, and with some he's famous by the name of his father. It's Laqit bin Amr bin Sabra, but there are a hadith from Laqit bin Sabra. Out of Ihtiyat Muslim, and uh, uh, 
Let's see. He says that uh, uh, um, that Muslim, and he mentions uh, Ibn Allah, and he mentions uh, a couple of other muhaddithin, that they they write the tarjumas, the the biographical entries uh, about both of them uh, differently, uh, and there was some discussion. Darmi, Darmi insisted that they're different people, but and then some of the muhaddithun they wrote their uh, biographical entries of separate people, but uh, it seems that there's some uh, tarjih, some preponderance of evidence that they're actually the same person. Laqit bin Amr bin Sabra, uh, he said that he came, came to the message, the Prophet وسلم, and he said, indeed my father is an old man and he's not able to make hajj, nor is he able to make umrah, nor is he able to uh, 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 um, to pitch and break camp. Uh, the, the uh, that he's not able to he's not able to pitch and break camp uh, he said that uh, uh, Rasulullah said may hajj on behalf of your father and make umrah and he can't do it, do it on his behalf now this uh, brings up an, an issue that I think is worthy of mention because I see people kind of fudging this they don't really understand how this is supposed to work in the Sharia, you can make Hajj or Umrah on behalf of another person. Not Hajj, sorry, the Umrah is with the Hajj. You can make the Fard Hajj on behalf of another person. And uh, in as much as the Umrah and all these other things are part of that, they're from its Lawazim, you know, the, the, they can be done on a person's behalf. However, um, there's a difference between doing making Hajj on someone's behalf, and there's a difference between making Hajj or making Umrah and then making the Isal Thawab that you gift the Thawab to somebody. So first of all, you cannot depute somebody to make Hajj on your behalf um, if they're able to make it on their own. So there are certain excuses that excuse a person from making Hajj. And if a person has one of those excuses, however, they have the money to do so and they can reasonably expect that they're not going to be able to uh, uh, make the Hajj in person later, they can pay somebody. If a person doesn't have the money and someone just volunteers and said, look, you know, you want to make Hajj, just make the intention that I make it on, like ask me to make it on your behalf and I'll make it on your behalf, then that at least you need to make the intention. The idea is that the person who's the Hajj is being made on their behalf. They're making the Hajj, at least through their intentions, and they're participating in it materially, meaning they're paying for whoever is going on their behalf. Even if they're not, even if somebody else is like saying, okay, I'll pay for all of it, you know, but still the intention is there. It's like, for example, a Qurbani, like you, your Udhiyah. If somebody's like, oh, I, you know, are you going to do it this year? No, I'm not. I wish I could, but I don't have the money. Says, so you know what? I'll, I'll pay for it for you. Right? Go ahead and make the intention. So you make the intention and then the person's paying for it benefits you. Whereas if you don't make the intention, if they just do it on your behalf, it's not really on your behalf in that sense. Because you didn't make the intention. That's, that's something important to understand the difference between, between those two things. And even a person, for example, they have money left in their, in their, like, their uh, uh, inheritance. Right? And their mirath, their wasiya, their bequest. Which is that I haven't made Hajj yet. If I die before I can make Hajj, this money is set aside to make Hajj on my behalf. That can be done. Why? Because they made the intention for it. Or they said, somebody from my children, please make Hajj on my behalf. Why? There's an intention for it. Now imagine someone's like, my grandma died, my great-grandma died. She was you know, a pious woman. I want to make Hajj on behalf, or her behalf. You cannot do that. Until or unless there is an intention made that you make Hajj on my behalf or somebody from my Waratha make Hajj on behalf. Well, may, you know, she probably, well, that's not how that works. What you can do if you've done your Fard Hajj already, right? Because you can't make Hajj on someone's behalf until you've done your Fard Hajj as well, right? So if you've done your Fard Hajj already and someone left that intention explicitly, somehow it was heard or seen or, you know, there's, it's, it exists like 100%. It's not just a speculation then you can do, perform the Hajj on that person's behalf. If not, you can, if you've done your Fard Hajj already, you can do 
another hajj, and then bequeath or gift the thawab to them. But it will not count for them as having made hajj. You're not doing hajj on their behalf. It's somewhat of a subtle uh, difference. I think a lot of people lose it. What happens to people like, I'm going to do umrah on behalf of my grandma. I'm going to do umrah on behalf of my deceased uncle. I'm going to do umrah on behalf of this, on that. And it's wonderful. It's a admirable, an admirable uh, um, intention. But that's not really how it works. What you're doing is you're doing an umrah and you're gifting the thawab to that person, you're doing a hajj and you're gifting the thawab. They receive the thawab, the actual fadail of actually performing the hajj or the umrah, they don't receive through that. They just receive the thawab, which is a good thing. It's not a bad thing, but it's just, you're not really doing it on their behalf. You're uh, gifting the reward to them. In order to do a hajj on somebody's behalf, it can only be the fard hajj, just like you can't pray salat on someone else's behalf, right? This is an exception to the rule. The rule is what? That you can't do things on other people's behalf from the ibadat, from the qismu ibadat. And so the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, so perhaps in that sense, the, the animal sacrifice was a bad example on my part. But at any rate, the, the, so because you can't do it on behalf, someone's behalf without them making niya because it's, it's not, it's ma'qul ma'na, it's not, it's not like ta'abud mahal in that sense. But the idea is what is that the exception, just like you can't read like zuhr on Tuesday on someone's behalf, you can't really do the ibadat on someone's behalf. Hajj, the Fard Hajj is an exception because of the extraordinary amount of difficulty that it takes. But the issue is that that person has to intend for you or someone to do it on their behalf. They should pay for it if they can't or if they don't. At least they have to make the intention. And then it can be done on their behalf. Even if they're deceased, if while they're alive, they you know, express this intention explicitly in a way that was heard or seen. Then a person can do it uh, afterward on their uh, on their behalf. Otherwise, it's a good deed that you do, and the thawab re- reaches the um, reaches the recipient. But then afterward, and then there's these issues, right? For example, like you know, you're gonna go to Tanaim and pay the cab driver, and then run the run the razor blade over your already shaved head, right? If the only thing that they're gonna get is the thawab, maybe there's something else in the amount of time that you could you know do that will receive more reward. Uh, so I tell people, I said instead of like you know doing you know. These kind of like cab runs again and again, just make nafal tawafs because there's more tawab density in it. But uh, then these things, they become like things they see someone else did it and then I want to do it or it's a cultural thing or whatever. So at the end of the day, you know, knock yourself out. It's not like they're doing something bad. But the understanding, the person who understands the system will benefit from it more. وَعَنِ السَّائِبِ بْنِ يَزِيدَ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ تَعَالَىٰ عَنْهُ قَالَ فرفعت امراته صبيا انا في لايك ذس مي بي ا مستيج فرفعت امراته صبيا فقالت يا رسول الله لهذا حج قال نعم ولك ولك الاجر ولك اجر عفوا رواه مسلم and this hadith is riddled with a number of typos i think that perhaps Somebody, one of the muhaqqiqin was watching a you know, soccer game, Lebanon versus Syria or whatever on, uh, on, on the television when, when this was being edited. So uh, these two hadith, the, again, they're separate incidences and they're narrated by separate people, but the subject matter is the same. That Sa'ab bin Yazid who narrates that uh, Hajj was made uh, with me, like I was taken on Hajj, is how he said it. He says, I was taken on Hajj with the Messenger of Allah وسلم, in his farewell Hajj when I was seven years old. And uh, Ibn Abbas narrates that the Prophet وسلم, met a group of riders uh, in Roha. Um, and uh, uh, Roha is uh, uh, a place. Uh, 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 um, he says, he says, مولد عمل فرعي بالضم فسكونة أو فسكون بينها وبين المدينة ستة وثلاثون أميال. So it's uh, 36 um, 
miles from Medina Munawara. And so, and then there's some other opinions about how far it is, but that's the more correct opinion to make a long story short. So he met these, this group of riders, Roha. And so the Messenger of Allah greeted them because he didn't know who they were. He said, who, which, which tribe are you? Which people are you? And so they said that we're Muslims. And uh, then they asked him, who are you? They didn't know who he was. Um, and so he, he said, I'm the Messenger of Allah. And so a woman raised up a, 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 a baby. Like lifted up a baby and said, is it possible for one like this to make hajj? And so the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he said, yes, the baby can make hajj and you get the reward. Meaning what? That obviously the child cannot make intention and it's like difficult to take the child around and things like that. But the reward goes to you. But the, the form of the act of worship is valid with the child. And so there's... There's a couple of there's a couple of things. One is that Sa'ib bin Yazid who said that I, I was taken on Hajj with the Messenger of Allah sallallahu when I was seven. Obviously, he benefited, even though far, the farth of Hajj is not um, discharged on his behalf because he's not. You have to be an adult, sane, free. So if Hajj is made, you can, Hajj can be made by a person who's mentally incapacitated, just like that. It can be made on behalf of a child. It can be made by, on behalf of a slave. But it doesn't count until you're sane, free, and adult. And, um, and so, uh, but there's benefit in it. So don't just say that there's no benefit in, like, not take your children with you. Like, okay, Hajj, if you cannot afford it, I can understand. It's no reason to bankrupt, whatever. Or say, like, okay, well, we took you on Hajj when you are like, three, and that's what you're going to do instead of going to college or whatever, right? You can't afford it, you can't afford it. But there's, it's not like it's free of benefit. Or Umrah, for that matter. It's not like it's free of benefit. Those the barakat and anwar, both in a seen sense and unseen sense, they stay with the with the children. I still remember my father took us on Umrah, Allah jazihi khairan, when I was in the sixth grade. You know, it, it affects you. And uh, um, so that's that's one uh, one thing. And the second thing is that the the reward then goes to the parents. So why wouldn't the parents want to take the kids? The point is to make Allah happy with you. You, it's beneficial for the kids, and it's beneficial for you as well. Anas uh, radiallahu anhu, anna Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, hajj ala rahlin, wa kanat zamilatahu, rawahu al-Bukhari. That's Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, um, that when he made Hajj, uh, he uh, uh, he made Hajj on top of his blanket. What does that mean? Is that another hadith which will make it clear? Hajj al-Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam ala rahlin rathin qatifatin khaliqatin Tusawi arba'ata darahim O la tusawi Thumma qala Allahumma ja'alhu hajjal la riya'a Fihi wa la sum'a That the Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam He He made hajj On such a Such a humble Saddle That 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 it was only worth four dirhams, or maybe not even that much. It's not a lot of money. And uh, then he said, Oh Allah, I ask you that you give me such a hajj that there's no showing off in it, nor desire to be heard about or talked about. And uh, this is uh, a humility of the Prophet wasallam. So the, the, hadith, the hadith is what? That he basically... He basically rode on a camel with all of his stuff and he just put the blanket over, wrapped it around and then sat on top of that. It was a very like folksy thing to do. It's not the sign of a king or some pomp or circumstance or whatever. Because usually you would have one camel to ride and one camel to have your stuff on. You can imagine it's not all that comfortable to have all of it, you know, there with you on the same animal. 
And this was the fikr of the Prophet ﷺ to keep it simple and to, uh, and to uh, keep it humble uh, and just focus on the purpose of the Hajj rather than the luxury of, uh, of the trip, which is something we should think about also because it seems that every year increasingly the Hajj has become more, more and more opulent for people. And uh, while we're busy, you know, asking each other what was in the buffet or what hotel you stayed in, um, you know, we should, and it's okay. There's nothing wrong with like making good arrangements for yourself. But the point is, is that this was the figure of the Prophet ﷺ. We should let it temper and sober us when we go through these processes, and not like flip out so much when like the five-star platinum Rolex package that we have, like you know, like your chai is like late one day, and then you're like, oh, bara fradhu amirisat and padanikya and before before like flipping flipping out and like going postal um we should we should we should just think about that and then the last hadith in the bab and said abdullah ibn abbas radiyallahu ta'ala anhu qala kanat uqadu wa mujannatan mujannatu afwan wa dhulma jazi aswaqan في الجاهلية فتأثموا أن يتجروا في المواسم فنزلت ليس عليكم جناح أن تبتغوا فضلا من ربكم في مواسم الحج رواه البخاري And so Sayyidina Abdullah bin Abbas رضي الله تعالى عنه وعنهما Finally it's narrated from him that عقاظ مجنة and Dhul Majaz, all three of them were marketplaces that used to happen in Jahiliyyah. And so what would happen is that Uqqad is a, is a place, Uqqad bi wazni ghurab, suqun min a'zami aswaq al-jahiliyyati wa ra'a qarn al-manazili bi marhalatin min amal al-ta'ifi ala tariq al-yaman. So qarn uh, al-manazil is, is the miqat of the people of Najd. And it is also a place that the people, the road uh, that the the people of Taif would pass on their way to Yemen. They, they would they would, they would uh, pass there. So it, there's a big wide open space, and so they would pitch a market. So everybody who's going to Makkah Mukarramah in the season of Hajj in Jahiliyyah, they would pitch a big market there for the first half of Dhul Qadah. People would bring their stuff from wherever they're coming, at, you know, and they would set up a market over there. They buy, sell, and trade. And uh, um, then what would happen is that after the fifteenth, they would move to another place called Mijanna, and they would set up a market. The same, like the same, ostensibly the same people. Although I guess there could be some difference. They would set up a market there for the second uh, fifteen days of Dhul uh, Qada. And then the last market that would be, which is in, in the Mijanna is closer to Makkah Mukarramah. Then after that, they would come to a place that's even closer to Makkah Mukarramah in a place called Dhul Majaz. And they would set up that market until the day of Tarwiyah. And then they would all then make it to Mina in order to participate in the monastic of Hajj. There was still a Hajj in Jahiliyyah, but it was very grossly disfigured. But it still used to happen in, in Jahiliyyah. And so, uh, yes the uh the, this 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 was the practice of the of, of the people of jahiliya these three markets and uh dhul majaz is interesting because the prophet i remember a narration about him that uh, there was one of the tabi'in he accepted islam later at the time he wasn't a muslim and i don't know if he met, accepted in the life of the prophet but he mentions that he saw rasulullah going through the the, the aisles the the aisles of the of the bazaar, uh, trying to talk to people and tell them, say la ilaha illallah, qulu la ilaha illallah tuflihu, say la ilaha illallah, and you'll you'll you have attained success. And so that some people, you know, the people were not were not listening, and uh, that Abu Jahl was basically bad mouthing him in front of everybody. And uh, he would, and and I, you know, I would wish that he would just stop. Because, you know, he was, I felt sorry for him that, like, people are treating him so badly. And he wouldn't stop. He would keep, just, he kept doing his thing. Sallallahu alayhi wa Which is, uh, you know, 
it should be inspiration for us as well. Sometimes we're so enveloped in like this level of respectability that we're like, oh, you know, I'll save a dying person except for it might scuff my shoe and then I, you know, I don't know, I won't get into Harvard. Or this type of mentality that we have. Sometimes you have to, just like there's a qurbani and Eid, you have to, the qurbani for Allah Ta'ala is your own izzat sometimes, your own dignity. Um, and that's there's a greater dignity in that than the dignity that you lose. And there's no one's dignity that was more precious than that of the Prophet And him saying, calling people to la ilaha illallah wasn't a decrease in dignity at all. In fact, it was an increase in dignity. Just the people didn't understand it at the time. And uh, and so that we shouldn't we shouldn't mock or say bad to somebody who, you know, we see them say the word of the haq and then we see people turn on them. Even if you and I don't think that it's a wise time to say it or whatever, that's fine. But we shouldn't look down on those people. That, why? Because the Rasul Sallallahu at some point, he also did this as well. That he stood in the aswat, he made da'wah to people. And, uh, you know, that this is a good thing. You know, it's a good thing. Whether you do it or not, that's a separate discussion. But at least a person should admire that. At any rate, so these three aswak were aswak that were there in, in Jahiliyyah. And so after Islam, the people were, they, it was like weighed heavily on them, like, can we do this? Is this like a good thing? فَتَأَثَّمُوا Like they, th- they felt like this is this like, they were afraid that it might be a sin. That they should go and bring their goods to buy, sell, and trade. Then the ayah came down that there's no, uh, you know, that there shouldn't be any uh, um, worry or uh, um, it shouldn't, there shouldn't, there's no difficulty or any aspersion cast on you uh, to seek the Bounty of your Lord. Meaning it's okay to buy, sell, and trade things in Hajj. It's permissible. And so, until this day, mashallah, Hajj is a very big mercantile activity as well. And, uh, uh, you know, we should also preserve that. There's something good about it. That being said, uh, Ibn Allah, he mentions that it's still preferable, superior to make Hajj um, free, with your hand and your head free of these things. Why? Because it's closer to, it's closer to being focused on on the task at hand, which is the ibadah of Allah Ta'ala, you have less distractions. But if somebody, that's what they need to do, that's what they have to do in order to earn a living, there's oftentimes khair in it, and there's good in it for, for the ummah as well. There's good in it for the ummah as well. And so there's nothing wrong with that. So that's what uh, what's mentioned. Fil uh, mawasimi, these words at the end of the, at the end of the, the narration. It's mentioned, فَضْلَ مِنْ رَبِّكُمْ that it's mentioned that there's some narrations that this is a shadr riwayah of the actual ayah from uh, from uh, Abdullah bin Abbas Wallahu alam, this is a possibility this is why the shawad are considered shawad mostly because of their lack of muwafaqa with the uh, Rasul Uthmani that there's no difference in the meaning but uh, oftentimes wherever there is such a gross mukhalafa with the with the Rasul in the narrations from Abdullah bin Mas'ud anhu or Abbas, uh, the ta'wil is what is that this is like these are notes of tafsir that they have in the in their masahif, not the actual Quran itself. Wallahu alam. I mean, if someone wanted to like you know whatever these like hardcore Christian uh, apologists, you know, answeringislam.com from back in the day, like type dudes, you know, look, the Quran is not preserved. Okay, fine. Worst case scenario, it's. That's what it is, right? First of all, you only know it because our guys narrated it. <laughs> Second of all, it doesn't change the meaning at all. Um, and it's really funny. There's a, a you know one of the top experts on the New Testament, uh, uh, Bart Ehrman. He was like accosted. He was accosted. There's a video of him getting accosted by uh, some evangelicals about like, why do you say so much that the Bible has been changed and it's not the same and it's this and it's that. He goes, obviously, over time, you know, it's going to change somewhat. That doesn't really mean anything. And and he's like, no, it's more than that. Like, it's obvious that, like, there are different copies. They didn't preserve it. You know, uh, it, it, you know, they mean different things. There's, like, gross differences between them. And they just got on his nerves. And then at some point, and the guy's not a Muslim at all. He's not even, like, slightly close to being Muslim. But uh, he just blow, blows up at them. He's like, he's like, he's like, what do you mean it's not possible? The Muslims look at their Quran. They didn't, you know, it's basically the same thing that it was from back then. You know, like if they can preserve it, you know, you guys could have done it too. Uh, but it's just not the same. It's a different book. They're different books. They're not preserved. And he, he, you know, and since then, 
there's other videos of him where he'll like, you know, like angrily, like make a comment in the middle of his speech. He's like, and I don't appreciate people accusing me of being a closet Muslim. I never was a Muslim and I'm not a Muslim right now. I just made one comment one time and now you guys are accusing me. <laughs> but the point is, is that, yeah, this is not something that a person should be too concerned about one way or the other because the meaning is completely exactly the same. And uh, the wheel of it being a tough series. Is a, is, is a very reasonable one. And even if not, even if not, the preservation of the Qur'an is such that that was rejected. Uh, so it is, it is what it is. It's not a, like the Ummah recognizes that this is not, the, what is the Qur'an and what's not the Qur'an. They recognize what it is. And that's the point. It's rejected in the sense that it's not rejected in meaning, but it's rejected that this, nobody actually reads, reads a Salat with, with those words. Um, and this is also the, the competence of the Sahaba radiallahu ta'ala anhum, a certain more conspiracy theory minded uh, sectarian groups blame Sayyidina Uthman radiallahu anhu for standardizing the resume of the Quran. And they say, oh, look, what is he trying to hide? You know, because they ordered the, uh, the copies that are not conformant with the resume to be burned. And the fact of the matter is, is that the copy that Sayyidina Uthman radiallahu anhu, you know, proliferated in the empire. Uh, in the Khilafah, it was just copies of the Mus'haf that was compiled during the reign of Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq. And nobody, there's no recorded, there's no recorded uh, objections by anybody. Uh, including those people that, those a couple of people that those conspiracy theory minded people claim are good. That are not in on the conspiracy. Even them, they didn't say anything. And uh, uh, further, further than that, uh, it was it was a, a move that was very intelligent. Why? Because you have to, you know, you have to like maintain the integrity of the of the wahid. This is why the Messenger of Allah sallallahu forbade people from writing the hadith during his lifetime. It's not because people are not supposed to, um, you know, repeat what he said. He actually gave explicitly gave permission to repeat what he said. Uh, and that's why most of the hadith were actually transmitted orally from the first generation. But it's because the Arabs were a people who were completely oral in their tradition. They didn't have writing from before. Writing was something new. Like writing to the Arabs in any major way, it starts with the Quran. Before, there's like inscriptions on rocks and things like that. Maybe there's translations of the Bible that missionaries from the outside made or whatever that nobody read. Um, but, uh, but it starts with the Quran. And so he wanted to make sure that people like notes and this and that, that people don't confuse one thing for the other. And he did a really good job. People had a really good idea what is the Qur'an, what is not the Qur'an. And so, uh, uh, you know, this is not really, this is one of the reasons that it, it's not an issue, that he trained them properly and they, they accepted it. And there was, you know, there's not really a lot of controversy about it. There's more controversy in Islam as to whether you should say Amin out loud and whether you should put your heels on the line or your toes on the line at like the Masjid at Maghrib time than there is about this. You know, you know, Muslims, we're crazy, right? If there's something to fight about, we'll fight about it, right? At least according to our adversaries, they think of us as barbarian fanatics. This is something nobody ever fought about because the Ummah knows what the Qur'an is, what it isn't. And so this is also uh, from the miracles of the Qur'an and from the sagacity of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and the, the, the wisdom of the companions in following his uh, methodology he left behind for its preservation. Wa sallallahu ta'ala ala rasulihi Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.